But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome to episode 16 of the Reach Podcast. Today I'm chatting to Tristan Manikowski. Um, this is a really cool episode for me because Trista did her PhD at the University of Northern Colorado and way back when when I actually got into the field of exercise oncology or how I got into the field was going to a conference and actually listening to what they do at their center and the University of Northern Colorado have this really cool rehabilitation center and they treat a ton of or they work with a ton of cancer patients survivors so I actually heard about what they were doing and that was kind of the the spark for me that kind of got me interested in this field and kind of you know started me off so it was a really cool one for me to chat to Trista but we talk a lot about uh, cancer related fatigue kind of what it is and how it differs from from fatigue if you remember from the episode with Patricia Sheehan, we talk a little bit about this. Trista's dissertation actually focused on cancer-related fatigue and looking at the difference between muscular fatigue and mental fatigue or, or perception of fatigue and seeing if there's a difference between, okay, you feel tired, but is your muscles or, or are your muscles or is your body actually tired? So it was a really interesting chat there in relation to that. And we also go into talk about this phased approach to cancer rehab and you've probably heard me talk about this a few times, but in cardiac rehab, when you have a heart attack or whatever it is, you go through a phased approach to rehab. You know, initially you're just kind of walking around the halls of the hospital, trying to get some sort of fitness up. Then you're gradually getting your fitness back. You're trying to go maybe outpatient where you're doing more walking. You're starting to get a little bit more active. And then, you know, as you move through the phases, you get back into normal life fitness. And we're trying to mimic cardiac rehab with exercise oncology in that, we have this phased approach of rehab. So when you first get diagnosed between diagnosis and treatment, maybe that's phase one where you start to uh, try and increase your fitness to buffer any of the side effects of treatment. Then you go through treatment, you're trying to, again, just maintain where you're at with a goal to once you get through treatment to the next phase, you're then trying to increase your fitness and get back to normal life. So we kind of dig into their model of phased approach to rehab. So it was a really cool chat and um, and I got a lot out of it. It's something that I've, I've followed the work of Northern Colorado and Tristis for a long time. So um, some really cool stuff in this episode. And just to kind of give you a picture of what we got coming up, uh, we've got part two of Kylie coming out, who is a physician and was also a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. We're also talking to a lady, Sammy Mansfield, out in Kansas City, who does CrossFit and cancer. So some really interesting conversations there. 
And then a lot of people have kind of been asking me about diet and cancer, and I've got a couple of people lined up. So first of all, I've got Dominic D'Agostino, who is a, a pretty well-known ketogenic diet researcher. So I'm going to get him on to talk about the whole ketogenic diet and, and cancer and just kind of get a well-balanced view of what that is because there's a lot of controversy in that area. And I'll also get someone from Ohio State in. Um, way back on one of the first couple of episodes, I talked about the Ohio State uh, meat study, and they're actually giving cancer patients, survivors, uh, three ounces of red meat per day. And it kind of flies in the face of that whole myth of red meat gives you cancer. It's <laughs> red eating red meat causes cancer. And we kind of want to jump into why that myth exists and how we can debunk it and kind of give you a more well-round comprehensive picture of what the diet and cancer research looks like so some really cool episodes coming up in that regard but for now just sit back and enjoy Trista's episode and we'll see you on the other end cancer related fatigue itself it, it different differs from a general understanding of fatigue in that it occurs without any exertion or activity um, it's more severe and then it's and it's a chronic type of fatigue um, and it can can severely impact um, activities of daily living because people will just feel so so tired and it and the other thing is is that it persists um, can persist for months to two years following treatment so um, it's not one of those symptoms from say types of treatments like chemo, chemo radiation that that end following treatment so that's that's also why I think it's one of those uh, symptoms that it's a little bit more important to investigate. So it seems like cancer-related fatigue is a lot more pronounced than, you know, just a, a day you wake up and, and sometimes you feel tired and sometimes we don't feel tired. It seems to be a direct result of, of treatment that, as you mentioned, is much more extreme and can last uh, quite a few months, if not years, following treatment. Right. And, it's, and it could be also partly from the, the cancer itself, um, I mean, generally it's more pronounced with with the treatment methods, but um, but the majority, if the majority of cancer patients report um, some type of fatigue and and it being then called cancer related fatigue. That's a good point. Do we know? I suppose do we know what would cause, or do we know anything about the mechanisms of cancer related fatigue? Why it happens, and and what are some of its causes? Um, I did a lot of research into trying to finding the mechanism, partly because the program at UNC was so uh, physiological or physiology based in the even to like the cellular cellular physiology level. Um, some of the theories would be uh, cancer related cachexia, uh, which is kind of muscle wasting from um, you know kind of the cancer and treatment itself. Uh, inflammation is probably from all of the research I did, the number one cause, more or less, um, so pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, oxidative stress, um, anemia, some neuromuscular function abnormalities, and you know some dysregulation metabolically. Um, but I think the the obvious one would be cancer-related cachexia. Uh, however, the majority of patients that we have coming into our clinic are not cachectic. Um, in that regard, they're they're generally of a healthy weight, and they didn't lose a lot of body mass from their treatments and things like that. So, it persists without evidence of cachexia, which would would lead it to some other type of physio physiological cause. 
if you will. Gotcha. And let's backtrack there because you talked about a couple of things such as uh, inflammation and, and kind of altered metabolism. Would would your body composition play a role in maybe exacerbating this, this cancer-related fatigue from treatment? I, I would think so, yeah. So it depends also kind of where you go in, you know, what your body composition is pre, pre-treatment. Um, and I think that makes a, a, a big difference as well. But it's, it's the problem with the, you know, the fatigue is that it's kind of a vicious circle, right? You feel tired, so you don't want to do activity. So then you lose your muscle mass, which makes you, you know, more tired, right? And you're able to do less things because of it. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a downward circle that each thing causes another and causes another. And so that's, that's an issue with it as well. Right. So it just seems to kind of compound on himself in that. The more tired you are, the less you want to do, the less physically fit you become, which then results in you being more tired even still and then not wanting to exercise. And that's what leads to months and years down the line, you're still feeling pretty drained. Right. Endurance levels and strength decline. um, And without doing, you know, any activity to maintain or improve that, it'll just continue to, to decline, especially in the majority of, obviously, cancer patients are... Um, are of older age where they're already dealing with you know loss of muscle mass and bone mass and um, just the effects of aging gotcha do you know anything about, or i suppose based on what you've read or based on what you've been researching have you seen anything on the cancer type or the stage or treatment affecting the magnitude of fatigue um yes i did a paper while well, i was in the process of writing a paper on that um so it doesn't seem that stage or cancer type has any significant effect on fatigue. Um, Compounding treatments, however, so if somebody just had surgery or if somebody had surgery and radiation or if somebody had surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, so compounding treatments will affect um, fatigue just because the treatment itself, each one of those separately will will cause cancer-related fatigue. So even even surgery has been shown to increase fatigue levels. Um, and then radiation and chemotherapy as well. So when you compound those together, um, those can impact fatigue. Uh, and those more advanced stages of cancer will, te- will theoretically have a higher level of treatment. Um, but I think when we run the, the statistics on it, it was they weren't really significant from each other. So how how can you distinguish uh, cancer-related fatigue versus versus just usual tiredness? If if a cancer patient or survivor is listening to this, um, what are some symptoms that of cancer-related fatigue that they may be feeling or going through? I think it's just that it's it's really unrelieved by rest. So um, it's kind of all all day um, resting doesn't improve it, and that it just gets, it's it's really chronic. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and it, and it's worth emphasizing that this idea of fatigue, people may have felt similar levels of tiredness in different parts of their life before, but the cancer-related fatigue, you can spend days in bed, and it really isn't alleviated. It, it kind of stays in that chronic state of fatigue, and it's very hard to dissipate. And counterintuitively, that's where exercise come in, comes in, and in that we seem to we're seeing more recently in in the research that the more exercise you do 
it tends to alleviate this this fatigue more so than rest would which again seems counterintuitive but uh, i'll kind of let you trista talk a little bit more about how exercise can help alleviate it uh yes actually it does seem counterintuitive but but we've seen um fatigue levels just drop considerably once once somebody starts a an exercise program um, and interest, I mean, interestingly, obviously there's a, there's a psychological component to the fatigue, but there's also, um, kind of that muscular feeling, right? Where it impairs your, your activity level, which is what sparked my interest for my, for my dissertation. But even we took me- measurements of fatigue before somebody comes in and then even two weeks, um, kinda, I took another measure before they started the program. So just even coming into our clinic and doing an assessment um, had a significant impact on their fatigue levels, almost knowing that they're going to start this program. And I think that was probably more psychological than, than other things. But, um, and I think the most significant drop in fatigue is seen right at the start of the exercise program, kind of starts to level out um, and decrease. But the, but the largest drop is, is pretty much in that first few weeks to, to a month. Um, in addition to I think just talking to the patients, I, I did a lot of one-on-one work with, with individuals, especially doing their pre-testing and post-testing, and, um, and I was testing fatigue. So just their verbal, you know, talking about how much better they feel and how less fatigued they are and how they wish they did it sooner. Most of them said, I wish I would have done this during treatment um, rather than waiting till I finished. And I think that's another important aspect as well is that I think cancer rehab is in a certain sense by oncologists treated a little bit like cardiac rehab where they don't refer you to the program perhaps until you finish treatment. It's like rehab. So you do your treatment, you finish your treatment and then refer you to rehab when in reality, a lot of the benefits from the exercise can be seen during treatment and should be started kind of earlier if possible. That's that's excellent points. So why do you think the the fatigue drops off so quickly and, and, you know, we kind of have this, this quick initial drop and then it levels off. I think just having, just getting into kind of a structured program of where they're, where they're doing something, you know, as, as far as, a, you know, structured exercise, I think is a, a big part of it. But there's also the, there's also the social aspect, I think a little bit in the rehab type of, situation especially when it's one-on-one training which which i feel is really important because they are coming on a regular basis to see the same person you know three times a week or the same group of people and i think some of the that fatigue is is that psychological and i think that that helps getting out of the house getting in an environment and actually doing the exercise so there's that part but then there's all the physical benefits that we're getting from from the exercise so I mean, of all of the side effects that cancer and cancer-related treatment have, exercise seems to counteract each one of those side effects, not only fatigue. And so I think it's improving other of the treatment effects, and then in that will help with the fatigue overall. Yeah, I fully agree. And so you've obviously seen an unlimited amount of patients in your time at, at the uh, Rocky Mountain Cancer Rehab Institute when these folks are coming to you for their initial assessments or their initial exercise programs do they, are they aware of the side effects that they're experiencing are they aware that they're from treatment 
Are, do they even know that that's what they're experiencing, or how did how does that manifest itself in in their perception of what they're going through? Uh, sometimes I think some some individuals do, and some don't. I think they they may not realize perhaps how fatigued they are because they've been that way for so long. Perhaps now it's depending on the length of their treatment. Perhaps they went through three months of treatment, and now it's kind of an it's normalized for them. They don't really realize how you know, fatigued they are compared to what, you know, what they, what they used to do and things like that. So, um, and a lot of people haven't been, you know, again, they maybe didn't do a structured exercise program before. So they maybe don't have an idea of their fitness level or of their strength level or their flexibility and and things like that. So I don't think in a certain sense that they do have an idea. I think they just, know that they're not able to do what they used to be able to do and they want to get back to doing that but i don't think they've in a sense would have compartmentalized it out to this is from this and this is from that it's just kind of an overall depressed state of of both physical and mental state yeah i hear you and i think a lot of that comes down to the education of the patients be it by us as physiologists or by their oncologists or physicians when they go in, in that I think they need to understand, you know, as soon as they're diagnosed, they need to have a better understanding of what they're about to go through in terms of their fatigue, in terms of their nausea related to treatment, in terms of their physical function and the potential loss of physical function through inactivity. And if we can improve the way we educate and promote awareness to these patients and, and folks who have been initially diagnosed, as you said, the sooner we attack this, the better. And the sooner you attack cancer-related fatigue or even before treatment, before you even experience symptoms of fatigue, if we can attack that sooner, the better off you're going to be in the long run. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it could atten- attenuate most of the um, side effects from treatment, you know, if we could start it start it sooner and they wouldn't, you know, lose as much or be able to maintain. Um, and that's kind of what our phase one was of the, of the cancer rehab program is in phase one there in treatment. And so our goal there is to maintain. And we're not looking for huge increases in their fitness level or their strength or anything at all. We're looking to attenuate any loss of current, current kind of endurance and strength levels or just to maintain, if you will. Yeah, that's brilliant insight because I think people can have different perceptions of what they're going to get out of an exercise program and particularly during treatment just the maintenance of your physical function is a successful program because of the, the such a steep rate of decline in muscle mass, in bone health, in physical function, whatever the case may be, if you can maintain them till you finish, that's a really successful program. And so as you said, Trista, I think this idea of, of shaping our goals and framing how we look at exercise as a medicine can really help to um, foster adherence to the program because people can go through exercise particularly during during treatment folks who are going through through an exercise program during treatment may very well get disheartened by the lack of progress they're making and that in fact the the fact that they're staying where they are and you know they may not be making leaps and bounds but the fact that they're just maintaining is such a, a massive goal for them and and you know a, a really positive step for them too right and i think overall it will help their help their prognosis and help them to then start to make those improvements once they've they've finished and we're able to push them a little bit further 
Exactly. Okay, so we're we're kind of going towards the cancer rehab center or the the phased approach, but I want to step back a little bit and kind of finish up by talking about your your dissertation, which you know was a trem- tremendous read for me. Um, you were looking at the differences in perception of fatigue and and kind of physiological you know measurements of fatigue within the muscle. Can you can you touch briefly on on your dissertation, why you were interested in it, and what you found? Yeah. So I was kind of interested in looking at, so we measure fatigue or cancer-related fatigue uh, using a survey. So um, at the UNC Cancer Rehab Institute, they use what's called the Piper Fatigue Scale, which originally was uh, validated for breast cancer survivors, um, but we've been using it for a long time and continue to use it because it's not specific to, there's no specific questions based on breast cancer or anything like that. So so the way that cancer-related fatigue is assessed, whether it be the Piper fatigue scale or any other sort of, there's other cancer-related fatigue surveys, um, but essentially they're all surveys. So so it, in, in a sense, that is somebody's perceived fatigue level, right? So um, I found it interesting to see if, um, if they were also fatigued um, in a physiological stance, so muscular fatigue, um, are those variables related to each other or, or are they not? And I think that's important in um, programming for cancer rehab in that perhaps somebody might feel very fatigued, but yet their muscle function is, is not depressed, if you will. So you don't have to, somebody's feeling fatigued, maybe you don't have to decrease their, um, their load of exercise for that day. Uh, I think in going into it, I assumed that they would be very highly correlated. Somebody felt more fatigued that they would perform, um, that their muscular fatigue would be much higher, would be higher than somebody that felt less fatigued. Um, So the first, there's kind of two studies out of this research. One was the correlational aspect, just running a correlation on the, their score on the Piper fatigue scale, and then their fatigue index on an upper and a lower body measurement of, of fatigue. Um, and then as they continued through the program, um, we did a post-test again, you know, at 12 weeks and at 24 weeks and to see then if that muscular fatigue would decline like we had seen the subjective fatigue scores decline using the survey. So those were kind of the outcome measurements or what we were looking at with kind of two different sides to it. Uh, so really what we found um, is that there, at least in, we used a biodex, so isokinetic measurement for lower body fatigue, and that was not at all correlated. So a large muscle like the lower body was, there was no correlation between, between fatigue and subjective fatigue and physiological fatigue. Um, interestingly, we used a, a, the hand grip test, kind of a, a concentric um, 15 rep kind of maximal strength hand grip test, and that was more correlated with the subjective assessment. And I don't know if that's, we didn't separate out types of cancer on that. If, you know, we have maybe more breast cancer survivors, so is their upper body strength a little bit more compromised than their lower body strength? Um, But overall, I think it happened to be that, that their overall strength was somewhat depressed. And so, Using a fatigue index, um, you know, their overall strength was not as maybe high as it could be. 
So they're giving 100% effort. Their muscles maybe weren't giving 100% effort. So so kind of overall, we concluded that, that they were not related to each other. So in that sense, um, should maybe not be used as a uh, factor in prescribing exercise. So those that are more fatigued uh, might be able to um, do just as much work as you would assume that they should rather than um, somebody that would feel less fatigued. That's such a good point and such an interesting result in that I would agree with you. I would have thought that perceptual fatigue and muscle fatigue would have been fairly closely related. But this idea that if you feel tired, and this is so important during treatment, if you feel, you will feel really tired and you will feel wrecked, whether it's chemo or radiation or even the surgery itself, a combination of all those, you will feel where you you feel like you won't be able to get out of bed, but your your body will be able to tolerate it. And it's such an important point in that how you feel and how you're able to function can be quite different and it really highlights the need for us to focus on trying to get, trying to get people active even though you don't you may not feel like it and you may not feel up to it and um it kind of explains why it is so counterintuitive in that you know you you, you do feel wrecked but your body is going to be able to handle the exercise and you're going to be able to do more than what you you think you could do so it's it's like that kind of old age just you getting up and getting started is the hardest part in that once you start walking or once you start doing your exercise, whatever the case may be, see how you feel five minutes in before you make the call on whether or not you keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, overall, after exercise, we did, you know, after 24 weeks of exercise, we did see a decrease in the fatigue index of the muscle, um, just not so they're in that sense, they kind of seem related, right? We had a decrease in the Piper survey and a decrease in the muscle fatigue, just statistically, it didn't it really didn't work out, but um, but they, we did see a decline in the muscle fatigue after the exercise. So, and obviously, you know, increasing in strength and things like that too. So, and remind me again. So, these were all sorts of survivors, or what was the kind of what were the patient population you were working with? Um, all sorts of survivors. So, all sorts of treatment, all sorts of stages, all sorts of um, kind of length to and from length of time to and from treatment. Sometimes individuals come to our um, clinic right after their treatment. Sometimes it's maybe a little bit longer, but um, I tracked obviously the stage and the and the types of treatments and the time in our program and all of that stuff. We didn't really control for all of that. We just kind of put it together partly because in a correlational sense, it shouldn't matter um, how long they've been in our program or if they're new to the program. Really, if, if we're looking for a correlation, if they have a, some people might have a really low score on the fatigue scale if they're maybe, you know, three years out of treatment and have been in our program for, you know, two years, but then they should have, you know, or I think I think it'd be inversely, then they should have a, you know, really, or a really low score on the fatigue index scale, right? So, so we didn't start out having, um, for any specific type of thing like that, because as, as far as correlation goes, we thought it would be better to have a really broad spectrum of, of people, those that are just coming to the program, those that are, so those that are feeling more fatigued and less fatigued, so we could try to look for that relationship. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I really like that design and that you're not you're kind of casting a wide net because that tends to be most representative of, of what a lot of different people are going through. So it's interesting that you found those results and that you know, kind of regardless of the the treatment or stage past treatment or or whatever the case may be, there's that that difference still seems to remain. Right. And there's we had quite a few. It was hundred and. 150 roughly I think at least in that correlational aspect so that's a that's a credit to you that's no easy undertaking for a dissertation that's no no easy undertaking for a researcher let alone someone trying to balance coursework and everything else oh I've got very familiar with the biodex that's I think I spent more time in the biomechanics lab than I did anywhere else for for those two years <laughs> the biodex is probably the most temperamental piece of equipment I've ever come across yeah, I got, at least I learned how to use it, and hopefully we'll get one here sometime soon. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so let's move on to this this whole model or phased approach of rehab. And I think, you know, I, we spoke a few years back when, when yourself and Jessica Brown uh, presented this at ACSM, and I think it's just a, a fascinating model to uh, to work from. Can you go a little bit more into depth into this idea of a phased approach of rehab? And firstly... Why is a phased approach, you know, why is a phased approach important in cancer rehab? Well, I think it's, we talked a little bit about phase one, right, which would be those people in treatments, but I, th- I think it, it's important to, to have progression, right, as any exercise program would have, but that's, that's sometimes lacking in a lot of um, programs. I think, um, think cardiac rehab. Uh, so progression um, but also that that one-on-one person that can help you progress because a lot of these individuals obviously don't know how to progress themselves. So uh, if it was just more of a group model or kind of just having them come work out on their own, uh, the chances of, of them being able to progress is, is quite minimal, right? So, so the model is based on a phase model of progression but a real big important part of that is also that one-on-one training so that um, they can get exactly the amount of progression they should have and it's targeted to their cancer, their treatments, and pretty much how far they are out of treatment. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think you really, you hit the nail on the head there with it is important because your your function and just like any rehabilitation program, your your physical function and how you progress will determine how quickly you move on to the next phase and so it's not necessarily a set phased approach where everyone moves on to the second phase after four weeks and everyone moves on to the third phase after eight weeks in that you will stay in a particular phase as long as it takes to see those improvements that warrant you moving on right brilliant Okay, so let's let's dive a little bit deeper into the phases themselves. So let's look at, you know, what is a phase one? Who typically, you know, who do you see in it? And what does the exercise look like in, in a phase one? Sure. So each program or each phase, at least one through three, is characterized by um, cardiovascular strength and um, flexibility training. So uh, 20 minutes of cardiovascular training, 30 minutes of of muscular strength and then 10 minutes of balance, balance core and flexibility. So phase one um, are patients in treatment. So whether it's chemo or, or radiation, so not necessarily um, 
some an immunity you know an immune function treatment but mostly just chemo chemo radiation so the purpose of this phase like we mentioned is to kind of attenuate the effects of chemo and radiation that have on the body um, and so those in treatment are pretty much within one month since treatment so the intensity is very low so low intensity both for you know of their heart rate reserve and also of their their estimated one rms um, which we do as a pre-assessment right and then also a low kind of low rpe so on a scale of one to ten or zero to ten would be like one to three so two to three times a week for an hour is the goal and then we'll stay in phase one um pretty much until they're finished with treatment like i mentioned or or out within one month since they're finished with treatment so in that phase one obviously there can be much greater fluctuations in energy nausea fatigue whatever the case may be from treatment do you modify the exercise prescription based on how they're feeling on any given day um not specifically the prescription but that's i think the important part of having um that one-on-one training so the trainer can can modify the the exercise so perhaps they only do 10 minutes of cardiovascular exercise right and maybe 20 minutes of of resistance training and giving them plenty of time to rest um, choosing exercises that might be more appropriate for that type of type of day or kind of seeing just what they what they feel like doing if that you know if that means anything for them to just at this point just coming and getting to the facility you know on a regular basis is an accomplishment so so we wouldn't modify the whole prescription but i think um individually then the trainer can choose the exercise and the appropriate intensity and time frame if that needs to be modified uh, yeah i think that's it's an excellent point in that as you mentioned there, there will be so much fluctuations in in fatigue and just getting to a center on a day that you've received chemo or the day after you've received chemo when you're just feeling drained is an accomplishment in itself and people may have this thought that i'm going in to do this exercise and it has to be the same type of exercise or same intensity that i did last week when i was feeling good and that's not necessarily the case in that just any exercise is better than none particularly during such an intense period of of treatment and so that modification helps you to to get that movement in and really get some sort of blood flow going and, and really work the muscles and and keeps you moving because too often we'll get people who start an exercise program during treatment and then these things happen treatment takes over and you get these feelings of fatigue and nausea and and tiredness and you you stop exercising for one day because you don't feel great and the next day you don't feel great and really working hard to combat those feelings of fatigue to just get there and do something will mean so much more to your long-term progress than taking a few days off where it makes it more difficult to get back into the routine. Yeah, and there's, I mean, for each phase there's a range. So, I mean, there's a target range. So whether it's 30 to 45% or what, or whatnot on those days that they may not be feeling up to it, they could, you know, stick on the lower end of that range. Commonly in phase one, we, like, I think that you mentioned, um, we have people that want to do, try to do too much, right? And the, the maintenance is the goal, but also to not compromise the immune system at that, at that stage of when they're at treatment. So, 
So there's two somewhat intentions of phase one is one, the intensity is set at a level for them to maintain and that they're able to accomplish while they're in these, you know, like you mentioned, going through, through the treatment. So it's, it's attainable, but also that it's not a high enough intensity that it starts to compromise their immune function. They're brilliant points. Okay, so let's move on to phase two. So phase one, throughout the duration of treatment, we've graduated into phase two. What does that phase look like? Yeah, so phase two is those either graduating from phase one or that um, come to our come to the facility after treatment. So, or perhaps they only had surgery or only had some sort of hormonal types of treatments. So... Um, Phase two moves to a low to moderate intensity, um, both increasing intensity of, of, of their cardiovascular exercise and their strength, and then kind of increasing their RPE as well. So again, shoot, trying to shoot for three sessions a week, but the, um, the makeup is really the same regarding cardiovascular strength and flexibility and balance. So kind of uh, the other goal, I guess, of phase two is to Build a, build a foundational base, so using functional and corrective training. Uh, so using the uh, NASM overhead squat assessment to identify any sort of muscular imbalances and things of that nature so that when they're ready to move to phase three where, this, where the intensity increases further, we've kind of corrected some of those postural imbalances so that they're, they're ready to have that higher type of weight, if you will. I really like that idea of of a functional assessment because it highlights the point that cancer patient survivors, while they do have they do have a lot more considerations in terms of their barriers to exercise, in terms of things that may need to be modified, they're no different in how we evaluate them as any other person, as any, you know, forty year old person walking in without cancer, as any athlete, that we still need to do the appropriate screening we still need to do the appropriate assessments of their functional ability before we can prescribe them uh, the right type of exercise so as you said looking at how they move and looking at how they they squat and push and pull can help design our programs to really optimize their outcomes and determine where they're at along their fitness journey but and especially for for those that maybe had um, surgery from breast cancer so reduced range of motion in their kind of shoulder girdle and upper body is is a common kind of side effect of that. So helping to improve range of motion, um, especially in those joints that, you know, so they can do something like a chest press or a push up without compromising uh, range of motion. And once they continue to move through the phases and don't end up with a poor movement patterns because of their range of motion and things like that. Yeah, that's, let's touch on that for a little bit. So breast cancer typically will almost always have some sort of surgery on one or both breasts and they may even have a port inserted for chemotherapy infusion and in some extreme cases can have musculature from their abdominal wall or you know even their lats in some extreme cases move to the breast to kind of make up that loss of tissue and so there can be a ton of issues in terms of their their range of motion and functional ability can you talk to some of the exercise that you've seen success in working around these if if you have breast cancer survivors who are looking to start an exercise program with their upper body or have come to you how have you worked around those range of motion issues um i i think just gradually trying to i mean stretching is a is just a really big part of it and i think stretching during 
you know, not waiting until the end to do the stretching, but so if you do a certain exercise, right, if you do end up doing a chest exercise that's, that somebody is able to do, then immediately doing some stretching or trying to do the, the opposite movement, right, working the opposite muscle. Uh, I think just gradually increasing range of motion is, is, the, is the big one or not doing overhead exercises if they're not able to until they, until they get that range of motion back. Uh, being cognizant of the port, there's some machines that, you know, if you if you are using some machines to build some strength, that can that can irritate that and things like that. Um, we haven't we've had a few individuals that have had kind of more severe range of motion, but overall, it's not as much of a common type of occurrence. Uh, at least for those individuals that come to the the institute, perhaps that they think. You know, those that maybe have some severe range of motion issues don't think they'll be able to do the activity and maybe then don't then don't come in the first place. But I think just being really cognizant of it and not doing inappropriate exercises and try to strengthen the back and stretch the chest and and work on the, you know, stretching the lats out and, and working on that range of motion as, as much as possible because that's going to be really what's important before you start adding weight. Right at that point, range of motion is more important than trying to, you know, build too much strength in an area that's been kind of compromised. So you mentioned a couple of uh, machine exercises that may exacerbate the the port or even aggravate the port. Can you can you just tell us what they are so people may have an idea of of some certain exercise to avoid? Sure. Any sort of um, there are some maybe you know horizontal rowing machines that have a chest plate where you would sit, you know, and that would push on the chest. So um, that's kind of, I mean, the main ones that seem to bother them or avoiding some of a, you know, a lat pull down type of exercise where you're going overhead that have reduced range of motion or even to a, depending on if you have an, you know, the adjustable chest press machine, but depending on the machine, a lot of them aren't don't accommodate for that reduced range of motion. So at, at UNC, they have a, a chest press machine where you can move the, kind of move it so that we can improve the depth of the exercise as the range of motion improves, but not not all facilities have that type of a machine where that would um, be possible. So something doesn't push their range of motion too far. You don't want to tear anything or or something like that. Yeah, that's a great point. Can you, uh, do you have any experience with people, ex- well, folks will experience some sort of strength deficit from affected arm to unaffected arm. Uh, can you touch on kind of w- what you've seen with your patients or or participants and, and kind of what they've experienced in, in differences in strength from treated arm to non-treated arm? Uh, yeah, generally the one that's that's been treated, especially if there's a, a higher amount of lymphedema in that side, um, that seems to be a more, you know, kind of limiting effect because they that can affect range of motion as well. So if they have a lot of swelling in the affected arm, they cannot, I mean, they, while they might have the muscle range of motion, the swelling really prevents them from, from doing some exercises where you're needing to bend, you know, at the elbow and at the shoulder. Uh, so in that case, sometimes using, you know, machine exercise where you're trying to work both at an equal amount of weight rather than compromise working, you know, one side with a different weight than another. So, but that, that will 
that will happen for sure for if somebody has especially more of a stage stage three when it's really involved in the lymph nodes on one side one side or the other less so much for a, a stage one or two depending on um so usually around stage if somebody has stage three lymph node involvement they they get quite a bit in that area of kind of the armpit area you can start to see why when we're talking about all these different issues that people do get wary of exercise and do get apprehensive about starting exercise you know we've already talked about the extent of lymphedema and its effects on exercise and we've talked about surgery or having a port inserted and how that can limit a lot of range of motion in, in the upper extremities compound that with the fatigue and nausea that you're already feeling and this really in terms of of the cards being stacked against you it's up there in terms of how difficult it can be to get started with an exercise program but it, it keeps coming back to the the effects of an exercise program are so profound on all these measures on all these barriers to exercise they can all be reduced if not completely eradicated by exercise so all the things that are stopping you from starting an exercise program are the exact same things that will be improved to such a greater degree by doing that exact same exercise program. Right. I think it's all of those things. And plus, they don't really know what to do or what they can do and what's safe and what's appropriate. I mean, the majority of, of people that start exercise, I mean, no matter what age, don't have a good idea of what they should be doing. Nevertheless, you know, a cancer patient doesn't know what's 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 safe and appropriate um, based on you know, right, their surgical status, their cancer type. Um, they don't know the intensity that's that's good to to do without compromising certain things, especially especially if they're in treatment. So so I think that compounding all of the what you just mentioned with the lack of, you know, structured exercise knowledge on what they should be doing makes it makes it really difficult and makes a, a big barrier for, for people to start a program. Yeah, and I, I think it it highlights the need for more professionals in this area and people who are trained in in the treatments of cancer and the and the physiology of the disease of cancer and and some of the side effects that come with various treatments so you have that background and ability to see the various side effects that people may be experiencing and how to work around them and i think that's coming you know we've both been in this field for you know probably just under a decade and I know I have, I'm sure you have seen a tremendous growth in the exposure of our field, the amount of professionals coming into our field. And I think over time, it's not going to be a case of if this is established as a standard of care and if there's going to be trained professionals everywhere, it's a case of when. And it's just on us to have the patience to, to see that out until we get there. Because unfortunately, as you said, too many of these patients and survivors are getting lost because there's not people in their area, particularly the more rural areas, that are trained in this and, and can really work with them. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think everybody thinks about all of the specific things that a cancer exercise specialist would need to think about, like lymphedema and range of motion um, and and all of the other things that go along with surgery and, and treatment status and all of that, you know, what's appropriate for if somebody's on this treatment or that treatment or the ports. And, and I think it's it's a more specialized area than than some people might think is to have an understanding of the the specific ins and outs of cancer rehab yeah definitely okay so where are we at we're at we just got past phase two let's move on to phase three and give an idea of what 
what someone looks like graduating from phase two and how do, how do they move into phase three? So generally, each of our phases is about three months. So 12 weeks has been shown to be a good amount of time before kind of progressing to um, a higher intensity, if you will. So, so usually about three months, depending on, um, you know, where they're at with the corrective training and, and range of motion and things like that. So, so we usually do three month phases. Uh, so that's kind of a timeline for that. We'll do a post assessment. And then, so those moving into phase three are those graduating from phase two. So, the purpose of this phase is to continue to improve their physiological and psychological functioning. Um, and it's also the goal of, so in addition to increasing intensity, a primary focus um, is to teach these individuals kind of how to continue with this program on their own. So um, encourage intrinsic motivation and self-efficacy with exercise and to can kind of teach them how to how to essentially start to work out on their own, right? Because in phase one and two, and still through three, um, the way that the UNC Cancer Rehab um, program works is that they have individual one-on-one -on -one training. And so um, that might not be, um, while, the, while the cost is extremely low, that might not be, you know, one-on-one -on -one training is not for, for everyone. And then to a point where they can graduate with phase three, they can maybe start to attend some group classes or do do some exercising on their own now that they've had nine months of one-on-one, -on -one, you know, somewhere between six and nine months of one-on-one of -on -one training. So increased intensity and then try to kind of move them into phase four, um, where generally in our phase four is kind of a maintenance or a lifelong fitness. So they continue to do exercise throughout their lifetime. It's it's such a fantastic model of rehab that one of the one of my favorite pieces about this and one of the things that spoke to me when you presented it was the idea of, of patient ed education and participants education and that we are more than happy to work with you one on one during these difficult times in in treatment and going through your rehab. But at some point you can't have a trainer forever and it's on us to try and foster that one foster that intrinsic motivation to keep exercising and try and educate folks on the benefits of maintaining their fitness and two really educating them on on their own ability to design exercise programs and figuring out what works for them and what's going to keep them consistent in exercise and how to how to modify the intensity or the type or the or the dose of exercise so that they feel comfortable going into the new into the into the world on their own and they don't feel lost because too often we have these programs set up and they're 12 weeks or 24 weeks and we lift or we we determine everyone's weights and we we change all the settings on their machines and we watch their form and we make sure they're okay and then we send them out the door and they they kind of walk out and going what just happened? I have no idea how to do this on my own. And and this idea of a phased approach, not just for fitness, but for the 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 participant or the the client themselves, and in, in their comfort that they can go off out into the world and design their own program and keep their fitness without the the kind of handholding that we typically see for professionals is such an important point, and I think one that can be really beneficial in this phased approach. Right, and that's the time for them to kind of start asking the questions, right, or 
having them maybe towards the end of the phase start designing their own their own workouts if they're going to come to open gym or go to a gym somewhere else or perhaps they have a home you know perhaps they have some home equipment and kind of working with what they're going to do when they graduate in phase four and having them have a plan and maybe having them start to if they're coming three days a week uh, having them do a, a, a day outside of the clinic or the facility on their own so they can kind of start start to move to not only that the knowledge of it but the the thought that they can do it on their own and making sure that they um, can kind of see themselves doing it on their own while they have a, a professional there to um, that they can ask questions and kind of try to help them develop their own program post you know the, the end of that true cancer rehab phase of phase three so what are some of the more common so what are some of the more commonly asked questions you would get from people in this in this phase three and four where they're starting to go out on their own? What are they what are they looking for in terms of guidance from you? Uh, if, because we use heart rate monitors to mon- to monitor their cardiovascular intensity, I think that's one quite a bit. So how do I? I don't have a heart rate monitor. You know, if the 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 client says I don't have a heart rate monitor, how do I? How do I modify, make sure that I'm working at 155 beats per minute or, or whatever. So that's, I think that's a key one. Uh, that's becoming, I guess, a little bit less now that we have um, a lot of the fitness trackers these days will do a heart rate. Granted, they're not as accurate as a heart rate monitor, but they can provide some guidance on on heart rate. But I think that's a that's a big one. Or, or what should I be doing and how many times a week and what exercises and how do I know when to increase my intensity level? Uh, those are kind of the major ones. So if someone comes to you and says, you know, I don't have a heart rate monitor and I don't have a fitness tracker, what, what is that advice you're giving them to to understand the intensity that they need to be working at? Uh, we usually use the, R, you know, the kind of the RPE scale. So each phase has its own kind of RPE. So, and they've been, they should have been coached you know, for those three phases on what RPE is and kind of what intensity they should have. So we try to have them use RPE as much as as much as possible. Um, if, you know, we could teach them how to, to do the heart rate method with their, um, you know, either on their wrists or, or their carotid, if they feel like that's something that they are, fe- you know, think is feasible for them to do. Um, or we can start to set them at a certain speed or, or grade of, you know, the treadmill that gets them what to, up to their heart rate so that they know next time, you know, once I should be at least, you know, three miles an hour at 3% grade to get my heart rate up to what it should be. And then teaching them, okay, then either up the speed or up the grade as you continue to progress. Yeah, that's great advice. I like that. So we're kind of coming down to the end of it. Uh, we're kind of running out of time here. I want to finish on a few different things. So the first thing I want to kind of talk about is uh what are some of the most what are some of the uh, more common misconceptions that cancer patients or survivors have about exercise when they come to you i i think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them right i think a lot of times they come because their oncologist told them that they should come (laughs) they maybe don't understand really what the program is or how it will work um but so often after that first three months when we're doing the post-assessment, they, I've, I've heard so many times I feel so much better and I wish I would have started this earlier. And um, 
why isn't this everywhere and, and things like that. So I think I don't think they understand, you know, the real large impact that it ends up having it having on their not only their endurance and their strength and their flexibility, but also on their mental status and their health status and their fatigue and all and everything. So that's usually I think the main the main point. Okay. And so if you had one piece of advice for both a professional interested in this area and a cancer survivor looking to get started with exercise, what would be your main piece of advice for each of those? Uh, so for a professional, I think, I think it's really important to, like I mentioned earlier, understand that there's, there's so much more knowledge that, that you would kind of need in order to really be a great cancer exercise specialist. Um, they do a great workshop every year at the at the UNC Cancer Rehab Institute, and you can become a certified cancer exercise specialist. And of all of the training programs I've seen, that would be um, is obviously the best one. And you get a full week of kind of intensive training and learning all of the the ins and outs of of cancer cancer rehab um, to to get certified and really to find kind of an area that's that's interested in this this is a big problem is we need to get it into the hospitals and we need to get it you know started in in more places so trying to find a place that would support you to start it um or if you could even do it on on their own um so for a for a cancer survivor i would just say get started on um, do something um i know it can seem hard but if you can find if you can find a health you know specialist in your area that would be the best to get you started um but just to try to start doing doing some sort of exercise on a consistent basis yeah i like that and you know any movement's better than none and the more you move is is better and as you say kind of the earlier you get started the better it's going to be for you so that's it for episode 16 again a huge thanks for trista for donating her time and just kind of sharing her expertise and and her experience with us a really cool episode that i got a lot out of and i hope you will too so again be on the lookout for a couple of those cool episodes that i've got coming up and we'll see you soon